0: Welcome to The Real Clear Politics Takeaway. I'm Andrew Walworth, and today I'm here with Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon, and we're talking with Catherine Gell, the founder of the Institute for Political Innovation. She's the author of The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy, which she co-authored with Harvard Business School professor Michael E. Porter. And we're going to talk about one of her ideas to reform the U.S. political system. It's called Final Five Voting. And she says it will help solve many of the problems in Washington by changing the incentives that guide our elected officials. So, Catherine, thanks for being here. And I want to start with something you said, which is that Washington is not broken, it's fixed. (laughs) Uh, What do you mean by that? Because I, I think what you're saying is that the system we have for choosing Congress, for example, it works. It's just working for the wrong people. Is that how you see it? And and who are the wrong people in your view?
1: Yeah, Andy, you're, you're absolutely right. It's interesting. I often say one thing that people in this country still all agree on, and that's when we say Washington is broken. And yet at the same time, it's actually the one thing that we're really all wrong about. Because if we look at it this way, Washington isn't broken. It's doing what it's designed to do. We think it's broken because we've been assuming that Washington, D.C. Congress, let's say, would naturally be designed to serve us, the voters, the constituents. But if we look behind the scenes, look deeper, we find out that, oh, actually, the day-to-day rules of Washington, D.C. in our elections have been designed and optimized over time to serve the political industrial complex, not the customers. So that means our political parties and all of their industry allies. And if you look around, I mean, and you guys are mostly in D.C., just look around you, we can see the industry is thriving even as the customers, the citizens, the voters have never been more dissatisfied. So we realize that the industry and the roles are working for some, but not for those for whom they should work. And so
0: just to drill down on that a little bit, Are you talking about sort of the professional political class in Washington? Are you talking about lobbyists and people who represent interests, which are real interests? Uh, They just happen to be organized here in D.C.?
1: Yes. So first, let me say I'm a big capitalist, Mm -hmm. um, believe in the free markets. In fact, I like to call Final Five voting free market politics but here's what's wrong. It is fine and good that the political industrial complex, by which I mean everybody engaged in the business of politics, including lobbyists, including campaign consultants, the media, the candidates, the parties, it is fine that they do well. However, what isn't fine is that currently the best way to do well is in the political industrial complex, the best way for candidates to win and for them to win reelection is essentially to do what they're doing, which is to cause gridlock, to divide us, to not solve problems because they'd rather keep them alive and gin up their voters. And that's the way in which our political industrial complex thrives. So, what we actually want is the political industrial complex to do well when and if the voters are doing well, when and if the legislatures are solving problems in a consensus, sustainable way, the big problems that we all have that would make a difference in our daily lives. When they do well while making things worse, that's not okay or sustainable, and we certainly shouldn't accept it in our democracy, the leading democracy in the world.
2: Catherine, this is Carl Cannon here. Would you take just a moment? Many of our listeners know what final five voting is, but some don't. Would you just explain how it works? And then I have, a, I have a question I want to ask you about it.
1: Great. I want to explain how it works, but I'll say one thing first. The purpose of final five voting is not to change our elections so we change who wins them, although sometimes it might. The purpose of Final Five Voting is to change our elections so we change what the winners do when they're doing their jobs, when they're legislating, when they're supposed to be working on our behalf to solve the problems and get us policies that move the country forward. So Final Five Voting is the umbrella name for a combination of two specific reforms, and we have to do them together. The first one is we get rid of party primaries, you know, the Democrat primary, the Republican primary, and instead we have one single primary where everybody runs, regardless of party and independents run, and everybody participates regardless of how they're registered. Go to the polls on primary day, pick your favorite, and then when we close the polls, we count the votes up and the top five finishers will advance to the general election. And then when we get to the general, now that we've benefited from five candidates, you know, competing to serve us, we get we need to choose who wins. And that's where the second change comes in, because once you have five, what you don't want to do is accidentally have one of those five win with 21 percent of the vote. Right. Which could happen if the votes split relatively equally. So we use a tool which is called instant runoffs, in order to determine which of those five has the real majority support. Instant runoffs is exactly like a series of physical runoffs like they've used in Georgia or Louisiana. But instead of voters having to keep coming back to the polls for another election, they simply cast all their votes at once using a ranked ballot. And then after the polls close, we use that information to conduct an automatic instant runoff where you go from the five candidates to the four, to the three, eliminating the person in last choice and last place at each round until you've got the final two. And then it's a head to head and we'll see the normal election result. So-and-so wins 60 to 40.
0: So just to summarize, the voters go to the polls twice. There was first a primary ballot in which all the candidates participate and the voter picks their single favorite candidate, correct? Correct. And then there is a second ballot, which is sort of a runoff, where the five top candidates are on the ballot, and the voter ranks them one through five. And then is it the first to get to 51%, or is it whoever is at the top when you redistribute these votes from the other candidates when you eliminate them? And and how does that work?
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks. So you're right to summarize it. So yes, uh, final five voting is a combination of an open top five primary. Voters pick their favorite and the five top finishers advance. And in the general election, instant runoff voting. Here's how the instant runoffs work. We actually always go to the final two. So it is true that in the first round of five, if a candidate gets over 50% of first choice votes you know who was going to win. You know that that candidate got over 50%. So obviously they're going to be in the final two and they're already a majority. So they're clearly going to win. But you still automatically run the rounds so that in the end, you know, did that candidate, once there were only two finalists, did that candidate win 51% to 49%? Or did they now win, you know, 70% to 30 those are two different preferences of the electorate, and we want to know everything the electorate has to say about all five of those candidates.
2: Catherine, you used five. Um, I think Alaska does four. They, they adopted y- your your program, but they, they decided on four. Why is five, in your view, better than four, and, and is four okay?
1: Yeah, so Alaska has uh, four in large part because it's just an earlier version in my 2017 work which the Scott Kendall, the, the uh, patriot in Alaska who made it all happen there read back then when they were designing Alaska, I called for four then. Long story short, we learn. And here's what I'll say in general. More competition is better, except when sort of the additional utility, the marginal utility of each additional competitor is outweighed by the complexity that that adds to the race. And I have a whole academic paper on it so I can go on and on but let's say this. The average human, neuroscience tells us the average human can hold 5 to 7 things in their brain at one time. So since this is absolutely a system that belongs to all of us, we got to make it be for the average human and therefore 5 is the maximum we should go with and it is enough to have dynamic competition and It'll eliminate these lesser to evils elections. And also, even if there were two Democrats, two Republicans, there's always sort of a fifth in there to throw the balance off and really hold everybody accountable the way competition does.
2: Well, you know, Andy, we did that the poll. John DelVope did those polls segmenting the, the tribes, he called them. And there were five tribes. So I, I, I'm i wondering if five is also a, like sort of a number that kind of defines the American electorate right now.
0: I, I think not only that, but just because I did some work in cable television for a while. And and what we found was that people basically watch five to seven cable channels. I totally trust you on the social science. Intuitively, it does seem like that's kind of a number that the human brain sort of gravitates towards. So Catherine, I'm just wondering how you think this changes the incentive then? How does it change the way a candidate uh, not only approaches an election, but an incumbent approaches doing their job? Because they're facing a different type of election, I guess. So in order to maintain their incumbency, how do they act differently?
1: Okay, here it is. So all of us in our jobs, we do what it takes to get and keep and advance in our jobs, which means we do what our boss wants us to do. Politicians are just like us, and we can't expect them to be somehow morally superior and always do the right thing if that's what's going to get them fired. So what final five voting does is it changes who the bosses are. So right now, 85% of the House, approximately, and about 70% of the Senate are elected in low turnout summer party primaries. What I mean by that is in a blue district... Whoever wins the Democratic primary in the summer is guaranteed to win in November. Like it's done, it's finished, over. And in a red district, whoever wins the Republican primary in the summer is guaranteed to win in November, meaning that those November elections and 85% of House races and 70% of Senate races are a complete farce because the decision was already made, which is super undemocratic, but it's also a problem. In in solving problems, because when your election was decided in a low turnout party primary by only one side of the aisle, that's who your boss is, because those are the people who are going to have to reelect you in you know two years or six years. And what we want to do is both profoundly democratic and also profoundly liberating and beneficial to the elected officials, which is let's make sure. In our democracy, that no one wins until November voters have spoken. November voters, all the voters in a state or all the voters in the district, should be the boss. And no matter what happens with Final Five voting, we'll get that benefit, which is people are answering to a majority of, of everyone in their constituency. But the theory behind it and what we see happening in Alaska, where this is actually reality, is that when you're elected by a majority of November voters, you have so much more freedom and agency to actually get to the meat of an issue and to work across the aisle if that's what's going to be helpful, because those are the kinds of activities that general election voters may like well enough to re-elect you, but those are the kinds of actions that party primary voters on both sides will turn you out of office for. Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example. The debt. Okay, so our national debt that's ballooning. We've known the broad outlines of the solution for decades. Well actually the broad outlines exist in our in our home economics every day, right? You can't, you have to sort of either make more money, as in raise revenues, or you have to lower your expenses and in the government, you know, cut services. So that's the deal that someday we'll have to have if we don't want to keep running up that national debt. But if you have that deal, guess who's going to lose? Both the Republican and the Democrat who voted for it, because they're going to lose their party primary, because the Republicans can't vote yes on anything that raises, you know, taxes by one dollar, and the Democrats can't vote less on yes on anything that lowers us, that gets rid of a service, you know, by one dollar. So the votes required to make a deal on any complex issue with trade-offs, be it immigration, healthcare, national security, debt both sides can't win again. But if they answered to general election voters, it creates an opportunity that they can still win. So we eliminate the guaranteed defeat. Solving problems that are hard, where you can't promise everything and give everything to everyone is still you know going to be hard to do. But once it's not guaranteed defeat, you liberate these Congress people who actually, for the most part, are, are motivated by really wanting to get the right thing done. And you free them to be able to do that and to really use their talent. So you get different bosses who want different things, different behavior.
2: I, I see how it works. I mean, you say it doesn't; it won't always affect who wins. You, you're trying more to appeal to their, their better a- angels. And most of them would win, but now they have incentives to to behave better, but it will affect some elections. I mean, Sarah Palin lost because of final four voting, right? I, we're pretty sure about that. Yeah, and and there'll be these. I mean, you know, Joe Crowley might still be in the House except, instead of AOC. I mean, uh, Matt Gates is somebody I'd have never heard of. Maybe if, if Florida had this kind of voting, so won't you weed out some of the more ex- Dream candidates, some of the more grandstandy candidates, some of the candidates who are into it for performative art reasons instead of good government? Won't it have some of that effect? And I have a (laughs) follow-up.
1: Yeah. um, If the general electorate wants performative candidates, they will totally get them with this system. They will get what they want. So you're making an assumption that the general electorate doesn't want that kind of performance. And if they don't, they don't have to have it. The reason I say it's not designed to change who wins is because I'm trying to put the focus on the fact is not so much that we have the wrong people. It's that whoever wins needs to do unhelpful things in order to win again. So I suspect, as you noted, that existing people may just change their behavior you know, to win again. There's a question sort of like, which Lindsey Graham do you get? It depends on what his primary voters want. We see a lot of flexibility on the part of of those who run, but the main point is really not about who wins because we're we're confusing ourselves by thinking they're the problem.
2: Let's say in most cases you'd still have some people gravitating for politics, and big egos, and whatever. But but you're creating a series of incentives for them to behave better. I get that part. Here's the part, and Andy and I were talking about this beforehand. It, preparation for this doesn't gerrymandering the extreme gerrymandering we've seen in this country undermine it somewhat andy read that quote that you say washington is actually not broken it's fixed but by you're using the word fixed in a way like it's rigged well that's not a, that's not a new thing the, t- the term gerrymandered is now 200 years old since the birth of political parties in this country elected politicians figured out oh wait a minute you know what it's a lot easier if i can pick my voters instead of my voters pick the office holders and they've been and the two parties have got this down literally now to a science And they're probably going to use AI to do it in the next
1: census. (laughs) I couldn't agree with you more. These parties work so unbelievably well together in one particular way. And that is behind the scenes when we're not really looking, they collaborate and collude, I would say, to rig the rules of the game in order to divide up the spoils of power And to protect themselves jointly from any new competition. And those two things, they're like massively effective at working together and figuring out an optimal way forward. And that's what we try to shine a light on is say, usually when they figured out that optimal way forward, it's good for them, but not so good for voters and not so good for problem solving. And again, that's part of why we need final five voting. But coming back to um, this question specifically about gerrymandering, actually what i Love about final five voting is that it really leapfrogs over that problem. Here's what I mean: Gerrymandering can create non-competitive districts when politicians choose their voters instead of the other way around. But we also know that lots of districts are naturally red or blue because of geography. So let's just assume that we had perfect districts—some someone's version of perfectly non-partisan districts. I should say, not uh, not artificially constructed districts. You would still have a lot of districts that are naturally red or naturally blue, meaning that anybody out of those districts would still win their election in a low turnout summer party primary when only 8% of the public is participating in the elections that choose who wins, meaning those 8% would be the bosses. So gerrymandering on its own, definitely, like gerrymandering reform, nonpartisan distancing, definitely won't help us because primaries would still choose. Once you put final five voting in, even if a district is sorted naturally or artificially through gerrymandering, by re- you still re-enfranchise every general election voter in that district. You re- if it's a blue district, you re-enfranchise all the Democrats who didn't who just don't turn out in the party primary, you've re-enfranchised the independents and you re enfranchise the Republicans. So if it's a blue district and final five voting, a Democrat is going to win. But what Democrat is going to win? Now, it may be that in the competition between an AOC and a Joe Crowley, which you referred to in that New York represent- uh, representative's race years ago, perhaps those general election voters, now that non primary Democrats would be voting and the independents and some Republicans, maybe they would have liked to have Joe Crawley as their representative. I don't know, but they would have had the choice. Gerrymandering is a problem mostly because voters are picked in primaries. We can just skip that fight and go straight to final five voting, which has not been partisanized and do something that is Good for Republicans and Democrats, or another way to look at it is bad for Republicans and Democrats, I meaning it's equal and it's it's pro-voter. There's nothing more democratic. I love, I, I love this. We are trying to do something that will get us better results, and it's also more representative. We're getting people better represented, and as a result, we're going to get better results out of the legislature. Like that is. That's a win, 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 win,
0: win. So Catherine, just from listening to you and reading, it, it doesn't sound like you're a huge fan of the political parties, the way they're put together right now. We've seen sort of a weakening of the political parties uh, over the you know last decade or so. Certainly, we see the rise of PACs and other sorts of political entities that have usurped some of the power of what we think the parties are there for. So my question is, does this weaken the existing two parties, and does it also help in establishing a third party uh, or multiple third parties? Do we end up with a more diffuse party structure in America?
1: Okay, I'm going to answer them in the reverse order you asked them. Okay. So you got to the third party question. Here's what I'll say about that. First of all, I'm a huge fan of strong parties. We need stronger parties, not weaker parties, which I'll get to in a moment. So our problem, I always say, is not the political parties. It's not that we have only two of them. The problem is that the current two are guaranteed to be the only two ongoingly, regardless of what they do or don't get done on behalf of their customers, the voters. So you can have 90 percent customer dissatisfaction, which is like the approval. Oh, it's like 80 percent approval rate of Congress and still never have any new competition. You can have, you know, what is it, above 60 percent that don't want to see a rematch of Biden and Trump and still never have any competition competition. So that's the problem. It's not that if you had three parties, it would be better, or five parties would be better. It is that the current two never have to worry about actually making their customers happy. They only have to worry about being slightly less hated than the one other choice. Now, that's like crazy. Actually, I had someone do this this morning. I had my colleague search on homedepot.com. Okay, you can choose between... 1300 refrigerators on Home Depot this morning, if you want. But as this is a quote from David Brooks years ago, he wrote this article and he said, and yet somehow in our politics, we're limited to Soviet refrigerator A or Soviet refrigerator B. Okay. Now we don't need 1300 parties and we don't even need three. We need the threat of another one to hold them accountable and sometimes, you know, there will be a third. And look, if they don't get their job done, they'll be replaced by a third once you can get in. And we, c- and Final Five Voting makes that totally possible. But let's not kid ourselves that it's a number. It's what the accountability of competition does in any human endeavor. And that's what we'll get with Final Five Voting. And, and, and we need to talk about Perot before we mm-hmm. leave. Can you guys asterisk yeah. that and let's come back? <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, Catherine, you've you reminded me of something that Andy's question did in your answer. So you and I have a mutual friend, Greg Orman, who ran as an independent, and he favors Final Five, and he's, he's an ally of yours and speaks very highly of you, both in public and in private. Greg thinks, and there are other people like this as well, uh, Neil Simon, who ran in, in Maryland, that a third party isn't necessarily the answer, but that we need we need independent candidates who can run as independents and win in everything from legislative races up to U- US Senate races, and that, that Reform that they think goes hand in hand with final five voting, and that final five voting might actually help. But I wanted to ask your view of that. Uh, in third party is one thing, but the other ha- sort of slash uh, is or or a strong independent tradition where independents can run, get funding, get on the ballot. It, what's your view on that?
1: Yeah, i I totally agree with Neil and and Greg on that, and I simply. When I talk about third parties or independents, sort of writ large the same thing, which is they are new competition that hold accountable the existing parties, which leads, and let's look at how that works in practice. Let's talk about Perot. Uh,
0: Okay. But before we do, I, I just want to remind our audience, especially our younger listeners, um who we're talking about. Ross Perot, he was a businessman. He ran for president twice in 1992 and in 1996. And in 96, he didn't make much of a mark, but in 1992, he did pretty well. Right, Carl?
2: He got 19.5% of the vote and you can get a fierce debate in a bar because some people think he helped Bill Clinton beat George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton will look you in the eye and go on a Fidel Castro-length speech on why that's not so, but
0: he was a player. I hope that helps. So, Catherine, go ahead.
1: Yeah. And and thank you just for reminding me how old I am, too. (laughs) Um, Not that I need reminding, but I've got it. Okay. So, that was my first election. (laughs) So, yes, Perot ran as an independent, and he only got 19% or 19.5% of the vote and zero electoral votes. But here's what we got. We got balanced budgets because of Perot, because Perot ran on the national debt and also NAFTA, but the national debt was one of his two big issues. And those 19% of voters put political pressure on the two parties to deal with the issue because they didn't want to cede that issue to the nascent third party movement that Perot was starting to galvanize. So that's why they came together and, and worked out that deal between uh, Clinton and Gingrich and you know, their, their constituencies, and we got those balanced budgets. Absent someone calling both parties to account on fiscal sustainability, we're never going to get a Simpson-Bowles debt deficit reduction deal because they're both just to keep spending and not tell on each other. So so as soon as you have competition once again you didn't change who won i mean regardless of whether it changed between bush and bush and clinton which is a different story but it wasn't that the independent even needed to win to change what voters or the customers get because competition in every industry is what drives innovation like someone might come up with a new technology and whether they the company you know turn into the next Facebook or Google or Facebook or Google or Apple copy it or buy it, the customer always ends up benefiting because that's where innovation comes from. And that's why we never have any you know, in our political system because they don't need to give us any innovation.
0: So third-party candidates, I agree. Traditionally, what they've done in American politics, they've introduced ideas and those ideas then get absorbed by one of the two parties for good or for ill. Um, So in in essence, I I think your point is right. Catherine, I just want to ask you something which is sort of more philosophical, I guess, which is, you know, what we're talking about here is the process and part of what the goal, I guess, is to sort of get better policy outcomes. And I'm wondering about this division that we sort of see in America today and whether you feel the division that we talk about so much is a product of the system that we have, that as you said, this political uh, industrial complex sort of is incented to drive people apart. That's one view. The other view is that there are real things going on: globalization, sorting. You you can name it. You know, people on the left and the right talk about it, but that there are really big changes happening in society right now, and that, in essence, is what is driving americans apart in other words there's something real going on there's a cultural divide there's an economic divide there's a sorting between red and blue states and that these things are driven by factors outside the electoral system at least and are sort of in the atmosphere and we you know we shouldn't expect by changing the way we count votes or do anything that that's not going to address the fundamental question of what so many people think is wrong with america right now That makes sense.
1: Totally makes sense. Totally legit question. Here's the thing. Both sides on that are right. There are real things going on that are increasing our division. And the political system is currently designed to exacerbate those divisions and profit from those divisions because of the way people get and keep their jobs. So the way I think we should divide the world, those of us who actually Want to see, you know, want to see the great American experiment be reinvigorated and thrive. We need to divide the world between the things we can do something about and the things we cannot. So if you look at the two halves of that equation, either real things are happening or, you know, the system's dividing it, we don't have a lever to pull on the real things any direct lever, but we own the rules of our elections. Article one in the constitution gives every state the ability and responsibility, therefore, to make the rules of their elections to Congress. Those rules aren't in the constitution and of course for their own state legislature. So we will intervene in that which belongs to us over which we have power. And then that will have a ripple effect into the system. Because if you think of this as a doom loop, which is wherever it started, chicken or egg, and the people you're mentioning, you know, will fight, oh, no, it's this, or no, it's the other thing. Um, as long as you get a lever in to interrupt that doom loop, then you will change, you know, sort of the self-reinforcing nature that is currently, you know, creating the doom loop. Which is a which is a word, by the way, um, coined by, at least to my knowledge, Lee Drutman, who is a political scientist working in this area, and he talks about the doom loop of our current politics. I don't want to go to one more conference and listen to people tell me about a ton of things that we can't do anything about. I mean, we should know about them, totally be a responsibility to know, but let's really re-index and make sure that we're at least, you know, I would say 80% of the time talking about things that are problems that we can change. And that's what Final Five voting is. It's powerful and it's achievable as evidenced by the fact that it actually exists.
0: Carl, we're gonna we're running out of time here. I wanna give you the last question uh, and get Catherine to respond and then, then we'll wrap it up. Well, Andy,
2: I don't want to name drop for our listeners, but I was fortunate to have dinner with Catherine the other night at the Jefferson Hotel with some uh, esteemed colleagues of mine in journalism. And she said something, I've been writing and thinking about final five voting now for, it's like six years now. And she said something I hadn't heard and I thought it was semi-amazing. Catherine, I'd like you to uh, tell our listeners about a way in which final five voting could have a role in expanding the pool of people who go into politics. And maybe even though you're very charitable towards these people who are already in politics, maybe helping getting us some better people.
1: Oh, thank you, Carl. Thank you for saying that the other night. Yeah, this is really important. I just haven't had time to write about it yet. Uh, I come from business. That's my career. And we talk all the time about the war for talent. The idea is that that that's the most important thing you need to do to have your company be successful, successful as a company and successful in serving customers. You've got to have the best talent and they have to be incented to do their best job. So we've already talked about how our current war for talent in politics doesn't incent people to do the best job, but it also doesn't make many people want to even go into that business. So do this at your next cocktail party. You know, ask people that you really respect, people that you think are amazing in every way and would be good public servants if they would run for office in the current system. And your poll is going to, you know, give you not very many people with a yes. And ask yourself that. Most of you wouldn't. And so we have diminished the pool of talent by some huge factor. I would say we've diminished the pool of talent by 90% going into what should be the most important jobs in our country because this country is competing in a global war for supremacy and leadership of the kind of international world that we have. And I would argue, and many would agree, that the world has benefited by America's supreme, preeminent leadership in the global world. So if we believe that, any of us who do, we need to be dramatically concerned that we can't attract the talent into our leadership positions, then explain final five to people and ask those same people if they would run under that system. You'll still be subject to all that horrible scrutiny and everything, but here's why you'd run. You'd run because people won't run because of what they have to say and do to win party primaries on either side. And people don't run because after they get there, they can't get anything done. So it's not worth it. Final five voting changes both of those sets of facts. So people will say, now that is something that I'm up for. That would be worth it. And having more qualified, talented people in this competition to serve the voters and solve these problems is not just a really good way forward for us. It is an essential condition of a continued free and prosperous globe. It's an existential question we face whether we will have the best talent running this country.
0: On that note, Catherine, thank you for that. Um, We're going to wrap it up. I want to thank Catherine Gale and Carl Cannon. We are here most Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. So bookmark this podcast, come back often. You can keep up with the podcast by subscribing to the free takeaway newsletter, which you can find at Real Clear Politics. As ever, I encourage you to go to Real Clear Politics, read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree, and maybe Catherine this week. There's more uh, at Real Clear on Final Five voting uh, by some of our other authors as well. Thank you for listening. And until next time for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.